The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is John Levy, author of You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome John Levy to talk about his new book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, published by HarperCollins. John Levy is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision-making. He specializes in applying the latest research to transform the ways companies approach marketing, sales, consumer engagement, and, and culture. His clients range from Fortune 500 brands like Microsoft, Google, and Samsung to startups. More than a decade ago, John founded the Influencers Dinner, a secret dining experience for industry leaders from Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities and executives to artists and musicians. Guests cook dinner together, but can't discuss their careers or give their last names. Once seated to eat, they reveal who they are. Over time, these dinners developed into a worldwide community with thousands of members. In his free time, John works on interesting projects like spending a year traveling to all seven continents and attending the world's greatest events like the Grand Prix, Burning Man, and Running of the Bulls, <laughs> barely surviving to tell the tale. And these adventures were chronicled in his first book, The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. And interesting facts. His father is an artist. His mother is a musician. His brother's a physician at Harvard Medical School. John worked his way through college selling Cutco knives. He's a big <laughs> Star Trek fan, and he was once named by Elle magazine as one of America's most eligible bachelors. John, congratulations on your invited, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Thank you so much. And uh, wow, I totally forgot about some of those things that I've done and I'm slightly <laughs> embarrassed now. So uh, wow, it's super fun to be here and I can't wait. Well, if Dos Equis ever needs a younger version of the most interesting man in the world, it's it's going to be John Levy. I don't know if anyone's uh, shared that with you not uh, or not. But um, and did I understand it correctly that your first book, The 2AM Principle, is being turned into a television show? It's been optioned by a pretty famous uh, uh, showrunner and writer. Uh, he uh, worked on everything from the West Wing. He created Bull, and uh, he did. Uh, he was running a show called Umbrella Academy, which you might know from Netflix, which is one of the most popular shows they've ever had. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I think going into pitch soon, and uh, hopefully. There'll be a uh, younger, more attractive version of me on television. <laughs> oh, come day. on. You know, you're most eligible bachelor at one point, and your, your picture is going to be at this website, at, your, at your, this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. <laughs> and just so people know, John Levy is not an unattractive man. That's, I'm just going to put that out there. And it's also perfect because I have the most attractive audience in all of mm. podcast world. I've seen these people. I've met many of them. They're very good-looking people. In general, I know that the litmus test for if somebody's attractive is if they listen to this podcast. So I can really understand that. Uh, Ford Models is mostly just following your listeners to see who they should sign next. Yes, thank you, John, for working with me on that. I, I, I really appreciate that. So let me start with an excerpt from the uh, towards the beginning of the book. Regardless of what we want to accomplish, from affecting our habits to championing a social cause or even building a successful career or company, we can't do it alone. Bringing people together in a unique way produces contagious results. Ultimately, the people around you matter. Who you surround yourself with defines your success, whatever that means for you personally, and has the potential to change the direction of your life and our society. That's what this book is about. The most universal strategy for success is creating meaningful connections with those who can impact you, your life, and the things that matter. There are a lot of theories on how to have a great life and accomplish what we want for a career, company, cause, or habits, but for something to work for all of us, it shouldn't require a college degree, extreme wealth, or coming from the right family. Instead, it needs to be built on what we all have in common, what is at the core of who we are as people and how we behave and interact. Nothing is more universal than our need to connect. It is what has allowed us to survive as a species. We aren't loners like tigers or sea turtles. Every one of us needs social interaction. So, John, let's go back in time just a bit and tell us about your rather personal journey where you learned about the importance of creating meaningful relationships. And I say that because like anything I've learned in life, I learned it the hard way. Oh, yeah. So, I was... Uh First of all, I grew up incredibly unpopular, right? I was uh, in grade school. Uh, I, I'll never forget this. And I don't think I put this in this book. Uh, my eighth grade teacher asked all of us to secretly submit all of the people we wanted to sit next to for the seating chart and all of the people we didn't want to sit next to. And uh, I found out that unanimously, nobody wanted to sit next to me. Oh, uh, no! So I did not grow up like being particularly popular. Uh, in fact, I was a geek, and my greatest strength wasn't being charming or charismatic. It was that I kind of saw the world in a different way. And back then, being geeky was not, you know, adored like it is now. And uh, so... So you were geeky before it was cool. Oh my god, yes. I mean, <laughs> I would argue that geekiness didn't become cool until 
Comic-Con became a thing. Oh, and right. the iPhone became a thing. Yeah. Because once you could have an tech that you carried around that you loved, people loved technologists. Mm. And when you were otherwise, like the only use you had was helping people program the clock on their VCR or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, or helping like, your grandmother with uh, Microsoft Word or something like that. Yeah. But then we had Clippy back then anyway. Oh, yes. Gosh. <laughs> Trip down memory uh, lane. But there were some setbacks that you had. Oh, uh, my God. Like yeah. so many of us. So I was, I'd graduated from college. I was heavily in debt. I was overweight. I, like, you know, I was fine at my job. I just wasn't doing anything that impressive. And I came to this realization. Uh, I was in a seminar, and the seminar leader said that the fundamental thing that defines the quality of our life are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And I was actually curious how true that is, because if you've noticed, you can read like a million self-help books, and all of them have a lot of cliches in them, but not a lot of it's really supported by research. Mm. And uh, so I came across a study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, and they were curious about the obesity epidemic. This was the 2000s. And they were curious, does it spread from person to person like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's, right? You don't get Alzheimer's from hanging out with people who have Alzheimer's to the best of our knowledge. And what they found was startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Mm. Your friends who don't know that person have a 20% increased chance. And their friends have a 5% increased chance, which means that we each have an effect three degrees out. And this is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Everything seems to pass through this superhuman network uh, that we call our communities and social circles. And so I realized that if I want to have an extraordinary life, what I need to do is not only meet extraordinary people, the ones I admired and respected, but for them to meet each other and connect with one another so that they could posit positively impact each other. Mm -hmm. And that was my starting point. And let's make sure a couple things are clear, I think, for the listener. One is you are not in this book talking about social media influence, correct? Oh, no. It's, I have a ton of respect for people who can create content online and get mm -hmm. others to engage with it. I'm talking about um, influence is the ability to impact an outcome or a person, right? So most of the influence we actually care about is, can I help get my child into a good school? Can I have my boss understand and respect my ideas? Can I get a promotion? What would be able to influence those things? Can I? There's a social cause I really care about. Maybe it's animal welfare or something like that. Can I get people to care about this issue and uh, raise money for it? Those are the things that'll probably affect our life significantly more than, you know, having a thousand more followers on Instagram. <laughs> right, right. And now one other thing I think worth mentioning is that you write that connection is not networking, and networking is a term that really uh, turns people off. Oh my God, yeah. So I, I ended up realizing that our influence is a byproduct of who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of belonging that we share. And so that first element, that ability to connect with people, to show up on their radar, for them to actually want to engage and interact with us, 
the problem uh, the problem with it is that conventional wisdom says you want to succeed you have to go network but here's the problem i hate networking <laughs> i don't know about you i i literally have never said uh, not said but uh, i've never heard anybody say oh my god i cannot wait to go network <laughs> right. it's like it's awful. It's it's torturous. And in fact, research by Francesca Gino from Harvard Business School, uh, they were looking at the implicit association, right? So other subconsciously, how do we associate to networking? And people feel like they need to wash. Right. I saw that in the book. It was yeah. like, it, when you mentioned the research, every, almost every anecdote or story you've got it's it's fascinating to read. It was a joy to read, but then you back it up with with research, and it's like, oh, how does he know that? Oh, wait a minute, <laughs> this is, yeah, I remember thinking that. And I just thought, boy, I would have answered that uh, survey the the same way. So before we talk uh, about the influence equation, which forms the uh, kind of the backbone of the book, I, I want you to explain what you mean when you write that we are facing, unlike ever before a loneliness epidemic. Mm. Yeah, so this is um, one of these things that people are finding very surprising uh, because we keep talking about how we're such a connected society and we have more friends on Facebook and you know people can stay in touch over the course of decades now and know what's happening with their old high school buddies and all that. But it doesn't seem to really hold. And if we look as early as 1985, the average American had just about uh, three friends besides family. By 2004, 19 years later, we were down to just about two. So in less than a generation, we lost 50% of our close ties. That's crazy. Yeah, I found that very worrisome when I read that. Now, imagine you throw on top of that the issues produced through social media, the issues produced through a pandemic, all of these things aggravated. And I know it's tempting to say, oh, it's the fault of technology. It probably isn't. It's probably more the fault that as we continue to develop as a culture, it becomes more acceptable to move for work. Mm -hmm. And so every time we move, we reset our social ties, right? If you, I don't, Doug, uh, Douglas, where do you live? In uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. So if suddenly you were to move to San Francisco because your career took an interesting turn, uh, you'd suddenly have to make completely new social ties. And that's really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My dad was in the army and I think I attended 10 different cool schools <laughs> growing up. And I, it's like Holy having parents God. in the circus. So yeah. <laughs> I know about that. Yeah. But without the free popcorn. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's super concerning. Now, the big issue is that when you look at the predictors of human longevity, it's not how many times a week you do yoga, right? It's not, oh, you had a papaya cleanse with some kale. It's number two, if you have close social ties. And number one is if you're, you have social integration, you're part of a community. And when you're constantly resetting your social ties, that means that it has a pretty big impact on us. And loneliness is on par with like smoking a pack a day of cigarettes. That blew me away when I read yeah. that. My it's, goodness. 
it's interesting because we relate to social isolation or loneliness or social pain as kind of a, a lesser version of pain somehow than if you were to break a bone or get punched in the face by some stranger or something. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that when researchers looked at brain scans of people experiencing social pain and physical pain, they couldn't tell the difference. Ah, amazing. Right? It was almost the identical areas were activating. And when they had people take painkillers, they noticed that people stopped feeling social pain and stopped feeling physical pain. So it turns out that whatever the masking element that causes a painkiller to work, it works across all of it, which means chances are pain is pain. And yes. when you're lonely, you're in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a fascinating one of many stories in the book about the Vietnam veterans uh, who became addicted to heroin. Mm. Uh, and then they were able to pretty quickly get them off of it. They, they wouldn't let them back to the United States just yet. They got them off of that. But it was about getting them reconnected with other people, as I recall, <laughs> and, and helping them not feel so isolated like they were when they might have been in combat. So it's it's interesting. Uh, the basic theory came from a really weird study called Rat Park, which I know sounds like a, a poor man's version of Disneyland or something like that. <laughs> yes, right. right. Like, uh, and essentially, the basic theory around uh, addiction is that if you put a rat in a cage with water and morphine water, they'll drink the morphine water until they die. And the researcher said, that's ridiculous. Rats are social creatures. If you put me in a box by myself with nothing but water and morphine water, I'd drink morphine water until I died. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's that we've just isolated people and they're experiencing significant levels of social pain. And so, if you take all these soldiers who were conscripted into the military, they're drafted, and you take them and put them into Vietnam and you have them fight a war that they never were interested in to begin with, then it's not surprising that anywhere from 15 to 20% of them got addicted to heroin. And so when they integrated back into society, there was this fear that there's just going to be this rampant amount of violent crime because you have all these battle-trained individuals who are addicts. And what they found was that when people reintegrated into their social structures, then as a result they no longer necessarily felt that social isolation and addiction levels returned to normal kind of U.S. numbers. Mm, really fascinating. Well, let's jump to some of the big questions of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And these are some of the big questions that you uh, decided after you realized about the importance of connection that, that you really kind of devoted a lot of your, your, your life to. And that one of them was what causes people to connect how do we get someone's attention uh, so they want to engage with us? So I I found it kind of amusing because on a base level, we kind of know this stuff, but until somebody puts words to it, we, we tend to forget. And that is that it, let's throw networking out the window, right? Nobody wants to do that. Yes. Instead, let's realize a couple of things. First of all, People have a tendency to connect over shared interests, activities, or culture, right? So, Mm -hmm. Douglas, I know you are huge into stamp collecting. 
me and you could talk for hours about the topic. Uh-huh. That is a shared interest. Right. Or Star Trek. Oh, my God. For Star you. Trek yeah. is actually, yes. I love Star Trek. Uh, now, a shared activity would be, let's say, if we both like to play soccer. Mm-hmm. Right? I go join a soccer club. I make friends. It's really natural because we have a shared background of relatedness. Or if, let's say, you came from a certain heritage and so did I, we could participate in like a cultural uh, tradition, right? Passover mm-hmm. for Jews or uh, Ash Wednesday, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the basic level. But then we want to ask the question, okay, if I want to connect with somebody really in a specific industry, right? So I want some to meet somebody very influential. Well, what would get them to notice me? Because if the person inviting somebody to buy uh, to for a cup of coffee that could literally buy a coffee shop if they want to, <laughs> it's like it's not a really interesting prospect for them. They get so many requests that it's just going to be a clear no, and they'll ignore the email or text or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So let's let's see what actually activates the brain. And the first thing we realized was that since everybody's after something, we need to give people a sense of safety. And so we're going to begin by being generous, right? I'm going to give without any expectation of anything in return. Mm -hmm. And if you're not worried, Douglas, that I'm asking you for something, you can kind of like relax a little. Now, when I say give, I do not mean I'm going to gift you a product or anything like that, right? And, And here's something important about that. If you notice, have you ever been to like one of those business dinners where they take you to an expensive restaurant and then you have to sit with them for a long time? No, but I get those invitations in the mail every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. And and it's like completely unappealing, right? You're like, I can just afford to go pay for my own meal. Yeah, I don't want to have to I don't want to sit there and be pitched by someone. Exactly. And or if you've ever been to a party that has like a swag bag, right? Like you end up just either throwing it out or regifting or something. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, it's a terrible use of resources and generosity. Now, what I mean by generosity is generosity of ideas, of support, of resources, of thinking, of experience, right? Something that would appeal to a person, and the context isn't, "I'm you owe me now because we did this. Right. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is that if you're really successful, you don't need an invite for another casino-themed fundraiser. <laughs> right. Like you've experienced it all. It's not interesting. I'll give you some money. Just leave me alone. Right. And what's interesting about that is that I had to figure out what would actually get people's attention, and it turns out there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA, and it's known as the major novelty center. And researchers found that when you trigger it, it responds relative to how novel something is and entices us to explore and understand it. Which means that if I can do something that stands outside the ordinary, it will literally get you interested and wanting to participate. So if you notice, just you gave the example of my dinners. Mm -hmm. The dinners have a really weird format. You can't talk about what you do or give your last name and you cook dinner together. And then when we sit down to eat, we play a guessing game. That is fundamentally novel. Mm -hmm. It stands out. Now notice, dinner is an activity, right? 
it's one of those three categories that people naturally co- uh, can connect over. Right. The but, word networking is not on the invitation. <laughs> oh, for sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although people don't know what else to call it because sure, we're sure. so stuck. So you end up being like, oh, he's a networker. And I'm like, cringe. No, please don't. But but there uh, is that activity. And I remember in David Burkus's book, who you mentioned in yours, it's mm, about yeah. working toward this common activity, just like you talked about the soccer or the stamps or, or something like yes. that. Yes. I, and that brings me to the what actually develops trust. I guess we'll touch on it a little bit later. But just to kind of finish this idea. So I can take a any activity. It could be, we could go hiking and then add some novelty, right? Mm-hmm. I can make it a little bit different. Like, let's have this hike be a problem-solving hike. So Douglas, you can bring any problem you want. There'll be four other people there. They're going to bring their problem and we're going to discuss it and find solutions to all of them by the time we get back from the hike. So n- now we have something novel. Now, Douglas, this is like just a standard idea. You can go take it and run with it. But I recommend then add more versions of novelty, right? I have a, a friend who's probably one of the most novel human beings I've ever met. His name is Franz. And he invented something called uh, Rental Car Rally. Oh, and the idea, yes. It was in the book. It's yeah. this crazy thing. You... You rent a car because what you're do- going to do might destroy it, <laughs> and you max out the insurance, and then it's a race on mileage. So you're trying not to go fastest. You're trying to use the least amount of miles. And on the way, there are challenges that you have to choose, like, is it worth going out of my way to do them? And people dress up like giant chickens and you know characters from shows and all that, and they just have a blast doing it. But it's completely novel, and it's very safe because... It's not on speed, it's on mileage. Mm-hmm. And so, suddenly you have groups of like-minded people who value these kinds of things, participating in something really fun and novel that also isn't particularly expensive. Like a rental car somewhere is not, you know, this isn't going to Davos that costs a quarter million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third characteristic that is really important is that People think that influential people spend their time with other influential people, but they actually don't. They spend their time mostly with their admins. And so, if you can curate an environment with interesting and impressive people, uh, well, you know, most of us will go far out of our way to go there. Like, it's not particularly convenient to go to TED. It's pretty expensive. It's Mm -hmm. 10 grand. But people who are invited tend to attend. Because they've done such a great job with curating. Yes, yes, and uh, we're we're sort of touching on these these uh, qualities that you can, you know, cultivate to get your interactions and events to be more uh, compelling. And you, mm-hmm. again, just to recap, you talked about generosity, n- real generosity, folks. <laughs> yeah, novelty, uh, curation, and the last one you mentioned was awe. Yeah, talk about that. So this is interesting. Awe is not just a higher form of novelty. Awe is something that happens when you change your perspective. Like uh, People sometimes describe the moment that they held their child for the first time as this awe-inspiring moment. Suddenly, everything changed. They saw the world through a new perspective. And what I like about this, one is, first of all, you're unforgettable if you can trigger it. And then the second is that People who experience a moment of awe 
report feeling more generous and more connected. Now, mind you, it is near impossible to achieve this. I achieve it at times at my dinner. But it kind of becomes this absurd standard that we hold ourselves to when we're thinking of how to design stuff. Will it happen every time? No. But just the fact that we're thinking in those terms means that it will happen occasionally. And it's a great place to build a relationship from when you can. Yes. Fascinating. So I I mentioned earlier that you you talk about how the fastest way to build trust between people who have really nothing in common (laughs) is to have them put collaborative effort into a common goal or or problem, sort of like making people cook dinner at a dinner party, uh, John Levy. But you also quoted Dr. Kent Grayson from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. um, Brilliant researcher. Yeah, they, they explained that trust is made up of three basic pillars. And I was wondering if you could touch on these. They, they, they boiled it down to competence, mm-hmm. honesty, integrity, and benevolence. Yeah. So it's interesting. If you actually, you know, if I ask you, what's the most important thing in a relationship? Everybody always says trust mm-hmm. or in communication. But then if you ask people, what is trust? They can't really tell you. <laughs> Yeah, it's and, like they either they it's like something they feel, but they can't articulate. And so Grayson and his colleagues have been able to tease out. Some people say there's four things. I like the three part model. And what's interesting about these three pillars is that they're not equally weighted. Meaning that, okay, Douglas, let's say tomorrow you go have an interview, and the interview just bombs. People's immediate response isn't, Douglas is incompetent, I can't trust him. They say he probably just had a bad day. He got his second you know, uh, shot of the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, yesterday, actually. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. And you have enough energy to hang out with me? Yeah. Man, you're, you are a trooper. I suffer uh, from my art, John Levy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm doing fine. I'm, just a stiff arm, but that's it. I'm lucky. That's, uh, I was out for two days. That was brutal. So, long story short, a breach in competence, if you have a decent track record, isn't a big deal at all. But, here's what's weird. A breach in honesty. If you found out that somebody lied to you, you wouldn't just be like, oh, I'm sure it's a one-off case. I don't have to worry about it. You would probably say, I can't trust that person. The floor drops out of the relationship. Yeah. Like, Everything they have said and everything they say moving forward, probably a concern for you. Mm -hmm. But there's this weird kind of loophole, and it works like this. If I say, Douglas, super quick, I really, really, really need you to hop on Zoom with me for 15, 20 minutes today, three o'clock, please do not be late. I I need to get your opinion about something that's absolutely critical. And you log in and you show up. And then 40 of your closest friends start singing happy birthday to you. And we've just had a surprise party for you. It would be really weird if you turned to me and said, John, you lied to me. We can't be friends anymore. (laughs) Right. Right? And that's because we value benevolence more than we value honesty. And we Mm. value honesty more than we value competence. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is that human beings tend to lead with competence. They say, oh, I've done this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is. Our computer systems work 99.99999% of the time, whatever it is. We never crash. And that's 
wonderful, but apparently we value benevolence more. So if I say, Douglas, I really want this episode to be a huge success. I want to serve your listeners. And I want to do whatever it is that will make you shine and this episode be incredible. It probably means that what I just said as a benevolent statement has a lot more value than the percentage of uptime that my servers have mm -hmm. over there. And we actually don't realize that. That's kind of interesting. Very much so. Yes, I just uh, found that that fascinating. And of course, it applies to about 99% of all marketing materials, mm -hmm. <laughs> as well as the pitch that a lot of salespeople give there. So let's go to the third one, because uh, our time is limited. And that is a sense of community. And yeah. how do we foster a felt kinship uh, toward a a common goal. And and we touched on some of these, you know, like the generos the, the events, the generosity, novelty, curation, mm -hmm. uh, and awe. But what all right, let's just cut to the chase, John Levy. It's time to soar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Building a community is based on that acronym. Don't don't oh, think well, I so, Yeah. Skills, opportunities, access, and resources. So this is specific to the community level influencers. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I want to connect with somebody who's uh who's a really successful business person, I'm going to build something that's generous, it's well curated, it's novel, and so on, right? Right. That if I want to connect with people who are influential on a community level, so like a reverend, martial arts master, a business leader, a director at a company, all those kind of like people who have established some success but are really looking to get to the next level, mm -hmm. that's those skills, opportunities, access, and resources. They need to figure out what it will take to get to the next stage in their career, to achieve mastery. Right. So that's where those things come in. And I think that those are really fascinating because it means that, listen, I might not be the you know, the most successful person compared to the people around me, but I do have an expertise. I can provide skills, opportunities, access, and resources. I can provide value because all of us have expertise in certain things. And so I think that that's a, an interesting starting point for how to engage with those kind of community level influencers. I think the other thing that we haven't gotten to really look at is that trust is made of those three principles or pillars. But there's actually a fun shortcut to getting people to trust you. Uh, and that's that IKEA effect. I don't know if you wanted to explore it. Yeah, absolutely. I just bought something from there. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, it's sitting up there, still not put together. But maybe I can have a party. Now that I've had the vaccine, I can have other people over. <laughs> and we can put so the bookcase together, yeah. And here's what's interesting about your bookcase. Once you've put it together, you actually value it more. Yes, and the reason is that anything we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the opposite of what we were taught. You know, in American society especially, we're taught, you know, you can do it on your own, you don't want to bother people, all that kind of stuff. But it turns out that that's actually doing us more harm than good. So if we ask people for support, for advice, for involvement, for their expertise – they're actually going to like us more. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, like Ben Franklin did. Uh, interesting yeah, story. It. Or it also brings to mind the um, 
Well, in a different way, the, you talked about the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah, they, they loved it because of how much they invested in becoming a Marine. So yeah, it's it's interesting. If if you invest enough effort into something, even if it's not something particularly enjoyable, you will have an immense amount of value in it. And that's true for like raising your kids. It's a pain in the butt to raise kids, mm-hmm. but we love our kids because we were the ones that raised them. We don't love other people's kids. <laughs> not as much, yeah, and that's why we're just so you know eternally proud of our of our kids. Yeah. They will literally puke on us and we'll go, "Oh my god, that's so cute." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that was interesting is that you write that influence is the ability to have an effect on an outcome or person. And for mm-hmm. people to have a sense of community, it's important they can both contribute to and be affected by the community. In other words, influence must flow both ways. And that really rung true. It really resonated with me. There was another book on the show a while back called People Powered by John O'Bacon. It was very specifically about building a community, just that. Mm. And so much of what you talked about in this section of the book, uh, it was like a, a, you know, for me, I, I was, it was, it was layering it on. It was, it was something of a, of an affirmation. Well, in the last couple of uh, minutes we have here, uh, let's talk about one of the other big ideas in the book, which really stuck in my head. That's about building a path. Mm. And you, you write that we need to let go of how we think people should behave and look yep. at what people actually do. So can you explain what that has to do with a Disney theme park and someone riding an elephant? Yes, for sure. Uh, so the first thing I want to just point out is that until basically the year 2000, uh, economists and probably marketers to a large degree, used to use this model of assuming that human beings were logical decision makers. And then in 2000, I think, too, Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in behavioral economics for proving that we make absolutely no sense. And that's what I mean, that human beings don't behave the way we want them to. (laughs) Darn it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if we made logical decisions, Uggs wouldn't be a thing, right? Like (laughs) the the pet rock wouldn't exist. Yes. Half of the economy would literally disappear because if we made purely logical decisions, we wouldn't purchase things out of insecurity and scarcity and all these other things. Yes. Right? Which means that fundamentally we're making emotional decisions or decisions based on biases and mechanics. And Disney is so masterful at designing their theme parks. They have this really weird kind of entrance process where you drive in, you park your car. This is at Walt Disney World. You go up an escalator, you buy a ticket, and then you ride either a boat or a monorail for 23 minutes and you get to the front entrance. And the tickets are expensive. They're ridiculously expensive. I think it's $1,200 for a five-day family pass. And the question is, why on earth would they make you wait to get in if they want to be the happiest place on earth and get every dollar out of your pocket? Don't they want you spending? And the answer shocked me when I came across it. It turns out that because the average American earns about, what is it, $44,000 after taxes, then when you spend $1,200 on a five-day pass, it really hits people. Mm-hmm. And they end up with some basic level of buyer's remorse. And so when that happens, our best bet is not to really engage people and just try and sell them more stuff. And Disney realized that it takes about 23 minutes for people to get over that. So when they 
added this 23-minute ride, it actually allowed people uh, to process their experiences and emotions. And so when they enter the park, they could be happy and spend money again. It's like a timeout for a kid. (laughs) So brilliant. It's so, yeah. But it's, the long story of it is that instead of trying to assume how human beings will behave, Disney designs around likely scenarios. And that way ensures that by the time you enter the park, everybody wins. I win even if I earn lots of money, theoretically, because I don't have to be around grumpy parents. The kids win because they're not getting yelled at. Mm-hmm. The parents win because when they get there, they can actually enjoy their experience and produce better memories. So everybody is better off. And the park is better off because they can actually make more money and be the happiest place on earth. Now, that we call designing around the elephant and the rider and the path. Because if the human brain is an elephant and a rider, the rider's our conscious mind, it's logical, and in the mornings it can make sure that we eat a nice healthy breakfast. But the elephant is much larger and stronger. And that's our biases and our emotions. And by 6 o'clock, if there's a candy bar on my kitchen counter, by 6.01 there's absolutely no candy bar there. (laughs) Right. And so, what some companies try to do is they speak to the rider and they give them a very logical reason you'll be healthier if you eat this food. And some companies speak to the elephant, which is a much better idea. And they say, imagine how good you're going to feel having this new iPhone, right? And so, uh, they sell a lot of iPhones. But there's a third option that nobody realizes. And that's what Disney does, which is they design the path. Because if the elephant and the rider are going down a path, and that path is so rigid that the elephant can't wander and find candy bars, then by the end of the path, people will be where we want them to be. And Disney knows that what we want is for people to be happy. So they designed a path for our elephant and rider so that you can be entertained and enjoy and see a beautiful view and see the characters on the train or the boat ride and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of that path, where you end up is happy and ready to enjoy yourself. You've let go of your buyer's remorse. Yes. Just one other question about the the path. You write that when you're creating a path, most people and companies and organizations develop like a simple three-stage process. Uh, Mm -hmm. This sounds like a sales funnel. Get your attention, interact with you, and hopefully gain your membership. Membership or loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. And you go on to write that this is a lovely idea. <laughs> it sounds very reasonable, but it has one big flaw in it. It's designed backward. Explain. Yeah, so here's the problem. I wouldn't start a journey from where I am. I want to know where I need to go because I can't plan a trip if I don't know where the destination is. So starting off with an advertisement as the first stage of my funnel, doesn't actually work. What I want to do is ask how I want people to feel and what I want them to think at the end of their journey. Yes. What kind of membership do I want? What kind of people do I want consistently engaged? Then I have to ask, okay, for me to get them to feel and think that, how do I engage with them? What activities, what conversations, what will trigger those emotions? Disney realized they want to be the happiest place on earth and be a profitable business. Okay, that means they had to invent a monorail and boat ride. Mm 
Why? Because during that time, people will process their emotions. That's the way they engaged with him. And then they said, okay, if that's the case, how do we advertise to the type of people who will engage with something like that? But the advertising only became, or the discovery process only became an option once we were very clear on how we wanted people to engage. Yes. Begin with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's terrific. And it, it it's like so many uh, books that have been on the show over the years that talk about, you know, the more you can get into your customer's head, <laughs> the more successful you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, that's a great example of how you start you start with the end and then work work your way backwards. I guarantee companies. And you know what, listener, <laughs> your company doesn't have to do this perfectly. You just need to get started and do it a little bit better than your competition, and you'll you'll be amazed at what could happen. So, John, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, people are really in need of connecting right now. That can be your customers, your friends, your family. And you might not be the person that is good at gathering hundreds of people. That's totally fine. But at the very least, reach out to a friend or a customer that you haven't spoken to in a while and check in on them. And if you're, if that's even too much for you, next time somebody puts themselves out there and invites you to hang out, accept. Because our relationships are really the thing that define our lives. Yes. And it, as I read through the book and, and learned more about all the science behind this, I just made me think, boy, the, the lockdown for the last year or so has probably uh, made it much worse. So the, oh, yeah. the need for what you just described is really uh, intense. So what's, well, that, that sounds like one thing a listener could do today to put in action an idea from your book. That's another question I was going to ask you, but just reach out to somebody. Let's go to the next one. Um, what books have most inspired your work and career, John? Uh, so there's a children's book I love called uh, The Little Prince. And it just has such a wonderful view of the world around creativity and inspiration and play. And I really try to play a lot. And I know that's kind of a ridiculous uh, response, considering I wrote a business kind of guidebook. Well, but Uh, you went to the Grand Prix. You went to (laughs) run with the bulls. (laughs) I I got crushed by a bull. I actually almost died. Uh, So that's on one thing. Then uh, from the from like the business types of books, uh, there's a few books I love. One is called uh, Dream Teams by Shane Snow. I think he's brilliant. It's, it was his second major book. He also wrote a book called Smart Cuts about using hacker methodology to accelerate careers. Mm-hmm. I think there's a phenomenal book on creativity called The Creative Curve by Alan Gannett. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you mentioned him in the book. And you know what I did, John Levy? Because I inter- mm-hmm. got to interview him. Uh, I took a picture of that page and sent it to him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, what, what's going on there? That's so funny. <laughs> and, and I took a picture of the page where you talked about David Burkus. Mm-hmm. They, they both were the book's not out, so they didn't, um, they hadn't seen it yet. So yeah, now they're primed. <laughs> um, I hope they bought several copies then. Uh, then the if, if you want more, David Burkus actually has a really interesting book um, that came out, I think, about a year and a half ago called "Picking a Fight." Mm-hmm. Which is like a it's a shorter book. It's not like one of these I don't think it's like two hundred and eighty pages. I think it's a bit smaller. But it's basically about how uh companies can do really well when they have a challenge. 
mm-hmm. and how to actually pick it. I thought it was very well done, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and then, I mean, there are just t- so many great books out there. Atomic Habits is wonderful. Yes. Uh, I thought that was very well researched. I thought The Culture Code was great. It was one of those books that I read, and I was angry I didn't write it. Like every so often, I'll read a book and I was like, "Why didn't I come up with that?" Yes, um, yes. And I thought he, that he did a phenomenal job. Um, and then there's a ton of you know great behavioral science books. Dan Ariely has a collection of them. Dan Pink, mm-hmm. you know anybody named Dan, I guess apparently does well. <laughs> right. Yes. No, it's true. I'll I'll include links to 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 all of these books and and just the sections the for Dan Pink and and you mentioned. Uh, Dan Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman. Yep. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including the books you mentioned, your site, your your LinkedIn profile. There's even a, a section, a page called yourinvited.info. I'll include a link to that. Um, and mm. your, your, your TED Talk and that uh, fantastic New York Times article. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and 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 now uh, a word to you, dear listener. Please do me one big favor, and I'm I'm not asking for a five star review. Although if you want to give me one, that's fine. But please reach out to uh, John Levy, and it, it, whatever format you're comfortable with it, LinkedIn, Twitter, on his website, sign up for his email newsletter, and thank him for being a guest. There are over one million podcasts, and John Levy has decided to be on this one, and it'll really make his day. He's expended you know years writing this book and past guests have commented to me in fact just today i got an email from an author talking about how much they love hearing from marketing book podcast listeners and if you're listening on your smartphone you subscribe to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link the book is you're invited the Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. The author is John Levy. John, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.